Welcome to Sojourn. Thank you so much for joining us for corporate worship on this Sunday. We've been going through the book of Proverbs. We're going to take a two-week break from that to focus in during this Easter season on the humiliation and the resurrection of Jesus. We'll be reading from the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 this morning, and next week we'll finish out 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, this is God's word. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, being found in the form of He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray together. Father, would you open up our eyes to things unseen, to glorious truths in your word. Would you turn our attention and our affection now to yourself, to your son, that he might receive glory and honor that he deserves. Help us to treasure him rightly and to see how to do that in this passage this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if we want to see God's ongoing vision for his people, for saints, for believers, and for church, if we want to see Paul's ongoing vision for the saints, we can look to what he says to the church, to the saints who are at Philippi in chapter 2. In verses 1 of chapter 2, he says, So there, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Easy. Got that. All right, no problem. No, this is an issue. We come in with all sorts of selfish ambition. I don't know how you came in this morning, but if you came in hoping for this perfect place, like I already messed that up. You joined me in that. You brought your selfish ambition in here with you, your desire to serve yourself as I did. Verses 1 through 4 put this vision of the church and of the saints and how they exist together out in front of us. And and we ought to know that we we don't stack up. We don't come in with our desires to lay down our own lives and our own kingdoms that we might serve the good of others fully. We all want to serve our own kingdoms and prop ourselves up as these self-promoted, self-made kings. We're supposed to be of the same mind. We know we've got all sorts of minds in here. The old joke is that if you get two Christians in a room, you'll have at least three opinions on everything. And so what's going to move sinful saints, sinful Christians, even sinful people, in the same direction that they might be of the same mind? What's going to move them to a place where they might be able to lay down their own interests and start looking to the interests of others as more important than their own? And furthermore, if they do that, what's going to keep them in that? 
Not just a a one-time practice where I decided to look to the interests of others that once. But what's going to keep me looking to the interests of others? What What is going to make me a person who does nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility counts others more significant than myself. What's going to keep a church of, of one mind? Well, Paul doesn't give us communication, communication techniques for that. And say, well, you're just talking about each other wrong. Like if, you just, if you sat in a circle rather than, don't do that. He doesn't give us peacemaking principles, as helpful as those might be. He doesn't say, you know what, here's how you work through conflict. And you work towards being of the same mind. He doesn't even give us a a purpose statement that we might be, rightly, a purpose-driven church, as helpful as all those things may be. Instead, God gives us something much more essential, much more helpful. He gives us the center of all of us. He gives the center of everything. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he takes us to the humiliation of Jesus, his descent into human form and to death on a cross. Because if we're going to have this ongoing vision for the people of God and as a church of God, then we are to know the depth of the humiliation of Jesus. We're to look to it repeatedly and we're to follow his example of humility. And the way we need to do that is by continuing to look at Jesus. And so when we look to Philippians chapter 2, there's a, there's a call to unity. There's a call to humility, to looking to others as more important than ourselves. And it's first of all rooted in the person of Jesus. So he says, have that mind among yourselves. And he continues in verse 6. This is yours in Christ Jesus, Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, in, in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to see this this week and next week, that what we have is that there's an author trying to explain the inner workings of the Trinity, which is really hard to do in words. And so all the way through here, there's going to be some difficulties with, well, how do we explain what's going on within the Godhead in a way that people can understand and, and people that aren't as bright as God so that we can figure out what's going on here and words almost seem to fail and I think we get that sense right from the beginning verse 6 because we, we see here of Jesus that he was called as one who was in the form of God and I think that word form kind of displays the difficulty right so I, I think of Plato right off the bat like you take Plato and you kind of mold it into what you want like so if you're me don't not artistically skilled Snake, that's the easy one. Just roll it out. <laughs> Snowman, that's another easy one. But no matter how I form it, like, it's not actually a snake. It's not really a snowman. At Easter, we know this well. Like, this is the time of year when we take marshmallows and we put them in a different form and cover them with a color and they're, they're supposed to be something different. Like, still a marshmallow. It's not really a bird, peep, whatever. It's, it's just a marshmallow in a different coating. Or eggs, same things. Like, you put it in the shape of an, a, an egg, it's still chocolate. Like it doesn't make it an actual egg, but is that the way the word form is being used here? And the answer is clearly it is not. Form is not being used in that way here at all. It doesn't mean that Jesus, being in the form of God, that he was just in the shape of God, that he was just in the appearance of God. What we're trying to get is, is an explanation of what's going on within the Godhead, and it's kind of spoken as, as from an observer, from, from like an angel or person looking onto this and trying to figure out what's going on here and who is this Jesus. But what's going on is they're observing, they're saying, they're looking at Jesus and he's just like God. He's just like him. Yes, his appearance, but, but more than that is being included here in this word form. Like his nature is just like God. 
His attributes are, are, are just like God. His essence, the way he is, he is just like God. The New Testament overall insists upon this, that he wasn't just the appearance of God, he was God. Colossians 1.15 says he's the image of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus perfectly reflects God to the world. He perfectly resembles God, represents God in the world. And if in case we're in any doubt, in verse 19 of Colossians 1, he says, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so if you have the fullness of God in you, you are God. And he had the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell in him. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. There wasn't anything missing, there wasn't a lack of, of anything. He was God in the flesh. In James chapter 2 verse 1, James calls him the Lord of glory. In John chapter 1 verse 1, we know the great beginning to this gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Here he is, in the beginning, with God and God. And it's that word, verse 14 goes on to tell us, that became flesh. In John chapter 17, Jesus speaks of, of returning to the glory that he had before with his Father. So in other words, Jesus understands himself to be God himself, this Lord of glory. And so what form is doing in verse 6 is expressing that Jesus has the essential qualities of God, that his being is that of God, that he is God. That's what it's saying. And this is saying this before he is human, before he takes on flesh, before the incarnation. And so before Jesus is born in a manger, he is God. He's preexistent. He's before creation. And his preexistent state is that he is in the form of God. And so what I think this passage is strongly doing is asserting the deity of Jesus. Here is one who is with God and is God from the beginning with no beginning. Which makes the end of verse 6 such a big deal. As verse 6 says that he was in the form of God but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now Jesus is God. And that's why it says he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Equality with God is something that he had. Right? It's affirming that he is God. He has that, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. As God himself, he did not regard equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, we could say. He didn't cling to his own privileges. He didn't insist on his own rights of receiving glory and honor and renown that he is Deserving of as God. And so here we have one who is equal with God, is God himself, who doesn't count being God as something to be used for himself. Jesus has all the rights and all the privileges for all of history and all of the universe because everything was made through him and for him, and yet he doesn't insist on these rights, is what it's saying. In the book of Matthew, we hear this story of a man who comes to a king with great debts. And here's what the king does to him. In verse 23 of Matthew 18, there's a kingdom um, compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in the payment to be made. And so the servant, he fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Well, this is a really big deal. Like He has a huge debt against a king 
who has all rights to just cast him and his family into slavery or to get rid of them completely. Every right is his. But instead, he, he offers out forgiveness. He, he offers out freedom. He gives this man the privilege to live, the, the freedom to live. Okay, your debt is forgiven to you. And then we think, well, then how then did he use his freedom, his privilege that he had just been granted? In verse 28, we see the answer. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. He starts to use his own freedom, his own privilege that he had just been granted, his own forgiveness to his own ends. And my fear is that many of our lives reflect that. That we use our own rights, our own freedoms, our own privileges, our own whatever is given to us to serve our own ends. And it strikes me how very unlike Jesus that is, who was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here's one who has every right to all things in all creation for all of history. And he doesn't use it or see it as something to be used for himself. How do we use our privileges, rights, our influence, our power for our own advantage, to gain our own glory? Or do we use it and give it away for the good of others? To serve others. And we remember the context of Philippians chapter 2. This is a call to unity, a call to humility, a call to looking to others as more important than ourselves. And here's a a church, here's a group of people that weren't being like Jesus in this way. And they need to be called to this ongoing vision of looking like Jesus, who was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. They weren't being like that. The church is to have the mind of Christ. And Jesus didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God for Jesus didn't mean that he was always getting. Equality with God meant that he was also part of giving. And so you just see beautifully woven into the the character and nature of God is that here's this God himself and and part of his, very part of his nature wasn't that he receive all the time, but he also be giving. I think this is vividly portrayed for us in John chapter 13. Where Jesus takes his disciples to the upper room, and they've all been out. And what you need to do when you come into a room like this, you're going to have a meal, is you need to wash your feet. And what does Jesus do? Here's the master. Here's the one they're all following. He could have demanded his right, somebody come and wash my feet. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives. He puts on the apron. He takes the basin. He grabs a towel and he starts washing other people's feet. He could have demanded service, but instead he gives it. And one commentator says that the impulse to serve is at the very heart of deity. It is his very form to forego his rights. This is Jesus. Think of the beauty in that. The very form of deity is to serve, to forgo his rights. And the church then is to reflect that impulse of serving and laying aside our own rights for the sake of others. That's what we are to reflect. That's going to take the mind of Christ. Knowing Jesus, knowing his example, and then looking to it over and over and over again for strength to continue to follow in that example. Using our rights, our our privileges, our power for our own gain, what it will do is it will weaken unity. Using it to our own gain will will hobble service to one another. Using our own rights and privileges and influence and power hurts brotherly love. 
And it's very unlike Jesus. Jesus has intricately woven into his nature as God this, this impulse to give and to serve. And it's gloriously displayed in his person. And this is the one we're to be following. And Jesus' equality with God wasn't regarded as something that he could only use for getting, but for also giving. And we see how in verse 7. It says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, it says, made himself empty. He emptied himself. And we have this unimaginable condescension in Jesus and that he came to us. That he was born as a human. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Like, I don't know that we can figure that out, how great that condescension is. But what does it mean when it says that he emptied himself? Did God then, once again, we're, we're in the complications of trying to figure out the inner workings of the Trinity and put human words to them. Now, did, God, did Jesus then just set aside his God nature and take on his human nature? Did he leave like his, his God attributes, his God essence, his God qualities aside and say, I'm going to be human. I'm going to take on human attributes, human essence, human qualities. And just to be clear, and I think that we do need to be clear on this, to set aside your attributes is to set aside your deity, right? So if, if God sets aside who he is, his nature, his attributes, then he ceases to be God, right? If you're, if you're not omniscient, you're not all-knowing, you're not omnipotent, all-powerful. If you're not those things, then you're not God. Right? So if you're going to set those things aside, then you're not God. And so is that what Jesus is doing? Did he, or did he just renounce his deity? Did he re- reduce it, maybe, or, or at least part of it to be man? Did he, did he in some way, partially or fully, cease to be God? Well, I think that in the Scripture, there is absolutely no biblical support, not solid biblical support for the idea that Jesus, at any time in all of existence, ceased being God or set aside his God nature. Jesus clearly displays the attributes of God, and he clearly claimed to be God. His biggest opponents wanted to kill him. And why did they want to kill him? Because he was claiming, I'm God. Right? They understood, at least in part, what's going on here. Here's a guy coming around saying, I'm God. Yeah, tear this temple down and I'll just build it back up. Right? I'll do it in a day. I'm, I'm speaking of my body. And they're like, sounds like you're making yourself God. Or he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they're like, wait a second. I know that name. And they pick up rocks because they want to kill him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Jesus clearly claimed to be such, so they wanted to kill him. So his emptying can't be a laying aside of his deity, his his power, his attributes. Instead, I think his emptying of himself is a laying aside of his divine glory. So you see in John chapter 17, verse 5, we read this earlier. He says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So again, he had it. He was with God. He was in the form of God. And now he's saying, I'm going to return to it. Return me back to that. Glorify me again in that same way. And so in other words, it's not that his glory on earth was non-existent, but it was concealed in human weakness. I think that Charles Wesley 
nails it on the head when he says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. That's the emptying that this verse is talking about. That here we have glory veiled in flesh. You look on this flesh, you're still seeing deity, but it's veiled. He's veiled his glory. I think this is especially true for those who knew him well. Who maybe have seen him run around with the neighborhood kids and throw rocks into the pond where he grew up. In Mark chapter 6, you read of when Jesus... Is rejected. He, he went away from there, it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, and he came to his hometown. Right? These people knew. Like he had a snotty nose and his parents wiped it. You know, like they, they saw him. They knew him as a kid. And, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where'd this, where'd this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? It's not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James. Like, we know this guy. He's, he's human. We saw him grow up. We know his family. Where, where does he get off doing these kind of things? Because they're looking at him and, and they're only seeing humanity. They're only seeing a, a, a man, a person. And they're only partly right. right. Jesus is man, but he's the God man, fully God and fully man in one person, undivided, completely undivided in all of his life. And so his emptying then was an emptying by addition. Not subtraction. That, that makes sense mathematically, right? So he's going he's gonna to empty himself and he's going to actually, he's going to add by subtraction or subtract by addition. Seems like the math doesn't work out, but what is he's, he's doing is he's not taking away his deity. He's adding to it humanity. He's making himself nothing by, by adding the veil of human flesh He makes himself nothing, and it's clear that he does this kind of in three movements that we see in verse 7, right? It says that he takes the form of a servant. That's the first one. He's taking the form of a servant. Again, form is the same as above. It's not like he just, you know, got molded into being a servant. He he didn't just appear to be a servant. No, he's as surely and as fully a servant as he is the form of God. And what's amazing about this is that servants have no rights. They're nobodies. And yet here we have Jesus who has every right in all the universe. He's laying it aside. In Mark chapter 10, it says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. The one who was in the form of God didn't come to be served. In John chapter 13, again, we see him kneel with a a basin and a towel to wash feet. And he says, well, if I do this, in verse 14... How much more should you be doing this? You go do it as well. Our God is so gracious that he comes to us, veiled in flesh, and that he serves. He even gets down and washes feet. And this is the one that we follow. And again, we need to ask, is this the mind that we have among us? Is is this what our lives look like? No matter what kind of influence and power that we have, are we the ones that are the first to jump up and, and take off our animal garments and put on the garments of a slave and to get down and wash feet? Do we take up the basin and the towel and get low for the good of one another? Because the reality is we're certainly not above our Lord. And if we're not above Him, then why aren't we doing similar things to what He has done? In that upper room that night as He 
wash his feet. I don't think there was a, a doubt at all in all of his disciples' minds. Who's their leader? Who's their master? I don't think they thought, well, here he is kneeling down. I guess we'll make Peter, let him lead us forward. No, they knew. They knew who their Lord was. Jesus is so great that he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant among people that he created. And so this is one of his ways of emptying himself, is taking the form of a servant. The second is that he was born in the likeness of men. An unfathomable mystery. He was in the form of God and he became man. He was born. And there are so many songs on this one event because it's almost hard to capture fully in any word at all that God became man. It's why we sing these powerful words like, Hail incarnate deity. Or it's why we're so excited that we get to sing, O night divine. Because that's the night when Christ was born. And it is this divine night that we don't even know how to explain well. That God came to earth in the likeness of men. Now again, we're having trouble with with language. Like, what does it mean that he was born in the likeness of men? Was he only appearing to be human? Was he he kind of like a Pinocchio? He's like in the form of a boy, but he's not a real boy. He's just kind of moving around, wooden-like. Although he's actually God, and it's just kind of a disguise. Is that what's going on? No, form... It's the same, it's likeness and form are, are similar. Form above was that he was actually fully God. We're going to see form again in verse 8, where it says that he was found in human forms. The same idea is that he was in the form of God. And what likeness is doing, he's saying he is born in the likeness of men, is that it's making room for us to explain Jesus in a way that we can comprehend. It makes room for accounting for his two natures. He was born in the likeness of men in that Yes, he is fully man, but he's also fully God. And so we can't just say he was born fully man without leaving room for saying he was also deity. So we have to have deity as part of his humanity. And so we say he was born in the likeness of men. One commentator says that this leaves room for the other side of his nature, the divine. The likeness of which he did not appear. His likeness to men was real, but it did not express his whole self. Remember, people looked at him, they saw man. They didn't see anything special. He didn't have a halo He didn't have some strange glow about him. He didn't have this God crown on all the time. right? He was even including uh, nothing special to draw you to him. No one would point him out in a crowd and be like, well, there's the the God. There's the God man. We see him. He's easy to spot. No No one did that because he was in the likeness of men. But that wasn't all there was to Jesus. It's interesting that that when people looked at Jesus, they didn't see anything special. They saw a man, but... Others saw more. You might recall a couple episodes in the Gospels where Jesus casts out demons. And he always tells them, be quiet. Because they're always rightly recognizing him. You notice that? They say these strange things. They see the same man that everyone else is seeing, and yet they're crying out, what have you to do with us, most high God? What are you doing, son of God? Over and over again, they recognize him. For who he is, they are the ones who are calling him Son of God, Holy One of God. The spirits knew when they saw Jesus, this is God. They could see through the veil of human flesh. This isn't just a man. This is the Most High God. And he's telling us what to do. And so we're crying out for him to be merciful to us. So it was obvious to them that this man had lost none of his deity. They're giving us these really clear confessions of the identity of Jesus by crying out, What have you to do with us? O most high 
God. They didn't have any doubts about who they were encountering when they encountered this person, Jesus. And so Jesus becomes fully man without losing any of his deity at all. And so here we have one who is totally God and totally man, and he stoops and comes to us as one of us. God took on flesh not to be served, but to serve. But his stooping would go even lower than being a servant It would go even lower than being born in human flesh. In verse 8, we read that that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willing to get low. So low that he would go to death, even death on a cross. The condescension of God to being born as a human was only the beginning of his condescension. And from there, it was just a steady slope down the entire way. Jesus was truly this man of sorrows that he keeps going lower and lower and lower. That he takes on the form of a servant after being born. That he knows homelessness. That he knows rejection. That he knows being rejected by many people who even would have called him friend. Like he doesn't have things that, that would, people would look to and be attracted to. Like this is a great man. He's followed by just a few. He bore grief. I mean shame and humiliation everywhere he goes. And then he goes to this place of death. Death on a cross. You see, what Jesus is doing is is he is willingly descending lower and lower out of his obedience to God. Did you catch that phrase in verse 8? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He did this in obedience. You see, what God has done is that he has set his love and affection on his people. And he loves his creation, that he wants him to know him and have a relationship with him. Specifically, in the, in the Old Testament, he set his love and affection on a nation that came through Abraham called Israel. And he, he called them his own child, his son. And so when this son is in bondage in Egypt, overpowered by the powers of the world, they cry out to him. And as a father, seeing his son in bondage, crying out and in need of rescue, what does he do? He comes to them. And he redeems them. He, he buys their freedom. He releases them out of the slavery they were in. He, he takes them out of Egypt and sends them on their way to the promised land. A land that they, he had prepared for them, that he wanted to have, that he had given to them. He wanted them to go there. And then they, they cross the Red Sea. Of God's great deliverance is so clearly displayed. They, he closes it in on their enemies. Their enemies are put down. He identifies with them. He says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. He, he speaks to them. He makes himself known to them. And then they go into the wilderness on the way to the promised land and they act like every child has ever acted. They disobey. They're rebellious. They sin against their father God. And so for 40 years, they're tested in this wilderness. For 40 years, they fail at every single turn to be a son to their father. And the story has ups and downs from there for these children, but the overall trajectory is not good. The son is not obeying. They keep disobeying their father. And disobedient sons who reject their fathers, they need rescuing. They need great forgiveness. They need transformation. And so the eternal son empties himself and is born. 
And in a lot of ways, Jesus comes and he kind of recapitulates, recapitulates the history of Israel. Similar to them, he, he passes through water. He is identified with God. This is my beloved son. And then he goes and he spends 40 days, almost like representation of 40 years in a wilderness where he's tested and tried, tempted by Satan himself. And while he was there, Jesus did what all others have failed to do. He fully entrusted himself to the Father. And he fully obeys his every command. Where all other sons had failed, where Israel had failed, here the eternal son steps in and he doesn't fail. He came to obey. He came to do what the Father wanted him to do. He came to obey the Father's will. We read this in the book of John. Chapter 6, Jesus says in verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Oh, we would love to know what your will is then. Tell us what it is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but to raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's clearly the Father's will, that Jesus not lose any, that he be able to raise them up on the last day, that he give eternal life to all those who would look upon him in belief. So how is he going to do this? He already has redeemed and saved his son before, and it didn't go so well. They rebelled against him and rejected him. So we're going to need a greater exodus. And we had this great leader in Moses. He was a humble guy, the most humble on all the earth, but he couldn't quite get it done either. And so we're going to need a greater rescuer. And they got this redemption that they had. They got bought out of slavery, but they're going to need a greater redemption because that redemption didn't set them free from their most their biggest problem, and that being their own sinful hearts. And so we're going to need a greater redemption. More than a perfect example was needed to redeem people for the sake of God's name. What was needed was blood. Blood was needed. Blood from a spotless lamb. Blood from one who was the perfect rescuer. Both fully man and fully God. That one's blood is the one that we're going to need. Only one can provide it. Only one can secure eternal redemption. But In order for that to happen, he was going to have to humble himself to obedience to that will. Jesus lived a perfect life. Forty days he's tested and he proves obedient and faithful to his father. He's obedient in every single act. Think about it as he's being tested by people trying to get him to say something wrong or have this these wrong kind of thoughts so that they can put him to death easily. Like he doesn't have even a millisecond of a bad attitude. He doesn't even have a millisecond of complaint in him. Like, God, why? i got to put up with this. I made this guy. And here he is giving me lip. Like, he doesn't have any of that attitude in him. Like, there's no bad attitude. There's no complaining in him. And then here's what he does. He goes to Gethsemane, right, being faithful all the way. And we read in, in this in Mark chapter 14. Here's what he does. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 They went to a place called Gethsemane. This is hours before he's going to be not only betrayed, arrested, and then crucified. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell down on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said... 
Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. He came to do the Father's will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you would not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's really interesting what we see here in Jesus because multiple times in this garden, in this, this hour of need, he pours out his heart to God with drops of blood falling from him, asking for this cup to pass from him. Nevertheless, what God wills, not what he wills. He does this three times, like multiple times, he's pouring out this prayer to God. Let this cup pass if it's your will. And then the mob shows up. And at this point, you see a resolve in Jesus. We don't hear an audible answer from the Father, but Jesus got his answer from the Father, didn't he? The Father's will was reaffirmed when that mob shows up to arrest him. Okay, there's no other way. This is how it's going to be. And you see this resolve when he says in verse 42, Rise, let's be going, my betrayers are at hand. There's my answer, I'm going to follow the Father's will. The only way to not lose any, the only way to raise him up on the last day, the only way to give eternal life is for him to lose his life, is for him to take the curse that others deserved. That's the only way. He had to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And though God, Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he emptied himself, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And one author says that this was to give himself to the uttermost, to the torture of crucifixion, to the horror of sin-bearing and God-forsakenness, for the sinless one to be made sin, for the immortal one to die. We have no means of imagining the terror or the pain involved in such experiences. And as he is humbling himself in obedience, he is burying his glory under veil after veil on the cross. When you look at the cross and you see Jesus hanging there, like it does not look like deity. It probably didn't even look like humanity. Right, both are so veiled on that cross that it's hard to see either one of them. I mean, what human goes to a cross? And we don't have this in our culture today, but everyone in that culture at that time would have agreed, I know who goes to the cross, the worst. Or if you're a Jew, those who are cursed by God, that's who goes to crosses. And so when they're seeing the cross, they're seeing a veiled thing. Doesn't look like God, probably doesn't even look like a man. But it wasn't obscured to everybody. As his Humanity and divinity were obscured to many and some. Neither could be denied. We read in Mark chapter 15, verse 39. There's this centurion there. And when he stood facing him, facing Jesus, he saw that in the way he breathed his last, and he said this, Truly, this man was the Son of God. 
How many had this man seen die? Lots of people, likely. How many had he seen hung on a cross? How many had he taken part of? Many. Likely he's a professional executioner. That's why he's there taking care of all the problems. He's seen people die. This is not a new event. But with all the events around him, he knew this one was different. Jesus is talking to this man next to him, forgiving him, saying he's going to be with him in paradise. All of a sudden, when he, he, he's getting close to his last breath, as he's struggling, as he's bleeding, that, that kind of gets dark. As he dies, the earth shakes. And he's, he's taking all of this in as someone who's done this many times before. And, and he's looking at Jesus. And he comes to this really strange conclusion. Because when you look at the cross, you can't see God. But when he looks, he's seeing all this other stuff too. And he says, that's God. He saw Jesus obey unto death, even death on a cross. And his confession was, this man was the son of God. What's your confession? What do you say when you look at the cross? What do we see when we look at Jesus? Uh, it's veiled, yes. But we shouldn't miss it. Here's one who's totally God. And here's one who's totally man. And the condescension that he takes on was unimaginable because it was God. The biggest point about the crucifixion wasn't just the cross itself. It was who was on the cross. Like this was God dying. This was God sacrificing himself. This was God being a substitute. This was God being obedient to God. This was God humbling himself in obedience. And make no mistake about it, death was obedience to God. It was the Father's will, Isaiah 53, to crush the Son. Why? Because sheep have gone astray. And we've got to bring them back in. And so I'm going to have to lay their iniquity on somebody. Who's it going to be? And the son is eager and willing, saying, I'll do it. Can I do it? In his death, Jesus is fully entrusting himself to the care and will of his father. And he knew this all along. Do you think he wasn't there when Genesis 3 was written? When it said, oh, one's going to come from your seed, Eve, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. You think he wasn't there when that was written? Was he not there when Isaiah 53 was written that someone is going to get the iniquity of all the world laid on him? Someone's going to have to get smashed. Someone's going to get crushed. Someone's going to bear grief. He was there when they were written. And he came. He still came. Willingly he came. Took on the form of a servant and trusted himself to the Father, humbled himself to obedience, even to death on a cross. Willingly, he gives himself for this. Why? There's so many ways we could say this. Here's one. To redeem from the curse by becoming a curse. In Jesus, we have one who's this perfect, obedient son, so that all disobedient ones could be fully adopted to the family of God as sons. And so what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, is layer upon layer of his greatness. Here's one who humbled himself all the way down to death so that those who trust in him won't have to face death forever. Layer upon layer of greatness. As Jesus descends, another step, a little bit lower, a little bit lower, all the way to death. And what we should see as he goes down is layer upon layer of grace. Grace upon grace 
upon grace. You want to have unity in the body? You want to have the same mind? You want to be able to kill your selfish ambition and put others' needs above your own? You want to be able to look to others as more important than yourselves? You want to be marked in your life by looking like Jesus? Well, you're going to need to know who this Jesus is. You're going to need to see his humiliation. And you're going to need to look to it often. You're going to need to follow that example and look to him as not only your example, but the one who empowers you to do the same things that he has done. And we don't need to die a sacrificial death. That's already taken care of. But we ought to be dying to ourselves for the sake of others, just like Jesus did. We don't have to look to Jesus. You want to exist as a son among sons? You're going to need to know Jesus. You're going to need him. And he came. He came. And so you can know him. You can follow after him. You can trust in him. And that's what our lives are to be. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word that does a really good job of trying to put into words the amazing attributes that you have. That does a really good job of showing us something we don't deserve, the inner workings of the Trinity, of, of how you work as Father, Son, Spirit. And it's beautiful. It's beyond imagination. And we can't grasp it fully. And we need your help. Open up our eyes. Uh, we are the ones with the veil over our eyes. We are the ones that don't see clearly. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes that we might see things unseen, that we might see things as they really are. And God, and then seeing that glory as it really is, would you transform us that we might look like Jesus and be a people who looks like Jesus. God, as we talk about Jesus and his death, we want people to look to him and believe. So, Father, if there are some who haven't looked to Jesus and believed, pray that they do it now. That you would save some for the sake of your name. God, help us to be a people that's for your glory and displays your glory. That you might be honored in all things. And that Jesus might be all in all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.